good to be back. We've missed y'all. I'm a rut kind of guy. I like to do the same thing week in, week out, day in, day out, eat the same breakfast, eat the same lunch, eat the same dinner, much to Becky's creative chagrin. <clears throat> but uh, uh, it's nice to be back. We missed y'all last week. Charles Mickey filled in, and I want to take a moment to publicly say thank you to Charles. He worked very hard on the lesson, uh, uh, and he's appreciated. <clears throat> Steve Taylor stepped in and, and did the, the PowerPoint, uh, uh, I think late Saturday night for Charles, and um, uh, uh, Steve Taylor did such a good job. I've really had to work with uh, Dale Hearn and my creative staff to come up with something today to, to, to measure up to what y'all are used to when we're gone. Thanks to Charles Mickey, it's good to be back in the saddle again. Now, I'm back in the saddle again. Back where St. Paul is a friend Where the Sunday school class feeds off of Paul's theology Back in the saddle again I'm back in the saddle again Back where St. Paul is a friend Be it Romans, Corinthians, Galatians or Philippians Back in the saddle again of course, we have I'm one more verse. Back in the saddle again. Back where St. Paul is a friend. Be it Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Galatians, Thessalonians. Back in the saddle again. I'm back Harmony. in the saddle again. Uh, that's enough. Um. <clears throat> Uh, a thank you goes out to Dale Hearn for sending me the CD of Gene Autry saying, you know, you could play back in the saddle again, which I uh, mischievously sent on to Phil Keggy and asked him uh, whether he might alter the words a little bit to fit our class. And so uh, Phil Keggy sends his uh, regards to us and said uh, he remembers our Christmas party fondly, and uh, this is a gift from him to us as a thank you note for our kind hospitality. So uh, I will let uh, Phil know you appreciated it. All right, so question. Have you ever tried to read the Bible from cover to cover? I mean, start there in the beginning, just work your way through. I remember the first time I tried, I was in ninth grade. Genesis is pretty good. I mean, you got the creation stuff, you've got some... Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Tower of Babel. It's, it's got some good flow to it. Then you hit Exodus. And somewhere around Exodus chapter 20, life gets a little dry. In fact, it's what I call Bible quicksand. With... All due respect and hopefully no blasphemy in, in, in what I'm saying. Please understand the spirit of this. From a ninth grade boy's perspective, you start trying to read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And I didn't make it through the Bible um, that year. Uh, in fact, it was a couple more efforts before I finally made it through. And I will confess to you that as I read through many of those chapters in those books, I did so with my mind reciting the words in front of me 
but absolutely no understanding of what they said. It's the kind of thing where you could read the page, and if you had quizzed me afterwards, okay, Mark, what was on that page, I'd have said, I don't have a clue. <laughs> but I read it because I wanted to read through the Bible. Uh, very, very difficult. And it's the reason why even today, if an adult comes to me and says, I want to read through the Bible, what do you recommend as far as a version I say, well, I don't want to just recommend a version. I want to recommend an approach. If you're going to read through the Bible, grab you one of those one-year Bibles. Because what they do is they combine some Old Testament with some New Testament, with some Psalms, with a little bit of Proverbs each day. And it gets you through the whole year. It's like having a multivitamin in your quiet time instead of just overdosing on vitamin A until you finish all the vitamin A you need for the year and then starting vitamin B, okay? That's a better approach. And so uh, I always tell folks in your study time, in your quiet time, try to blend what you're reading. Don't simply read from one source, you know. Don't just read out of the Gospels. Plug in a little bit of other things too, okay? So uh, that's what I did. Now, our goal here in this class segment on Paul's theology is to understand uh, uh, ultimately where we're headed, what does the law mean to us? How does the law apply to us? When Paul writes about the law, what part of the law applies to me as a Christian? What should I be doing? Should I read the Old Testament at all? If I read it, do I simply read it for the good stories? And can I skip over all of that law mumbo-jumbo? What part of the law applies to me as a Christian? What part of the law applies to my church? What part of, I mean, should we be worshiping on the Sabbath day to keep it holy? That's Saturday. Should we, you know, as a, as a church... What should we be to what part of the law applies to us? And I'll take it another step and say what part of the law applies to our country or to another country. This uh, through the wonders of the World Wide Web is listened to throughout the world. And so I would challenge people to, to answer that question ultimately too. What does the law, the Old Testament law, how does it apply to a, a country, to a society, to a culture? Should we be legislating what God set out on Mount Sinai for the Jews? Should that be what our state legislators are pursuing? Should we claim the blessings and some of the promises that were due to Israel when they got the law? Or is that maybe unfair for us to do because we're not Israel? Those are questions that are good, solid theology questions I want us to address in this class. But to address those questions fully and fairly, we've got to lay a foundation. And the foundation class is this week. So our foundation is to dig deep into this question, what is the law? Now, we've got some benefit of a lot of people who've spoken out on this. I went to Hollywood and tried to find us a good um, answer to this question, what is the law? And so with the wonders of, of, of uh, let's see.
Sylvester Stallone claims in Judge Dredd to be the law. Now, I can tell that a lot of you have not seen this classic movie. <laughs> and so I feel it incumbent to tell you, as someone who watches all of the classic movies, <laughs> incumbent to tell you it turns out he's not really the law. Uh, there's this other little clip that kind of tells us that. Can you? Great. Mr. I am the law. Can't. So, he's not the law. What's the law? You look it up in Oxford's English Dictionary, there are six pages. Six pages. And these are like triple column, fine, you know, two-point type. Get out the microscope. Six pages. But when we talk about law, and it's important because that's the word our English Bibles are using in the New Testament. And we got to be careful that we understand what Paul meant when he was writing about the law. He's writing in Greek, but his education and background in the law he's referencing generally is the Old Testament in Hebrew. So where does all of this land? Well, in English, my mind and your mind, typically when we read that word law, we think about some code or, or some rules that we have to live by. Don't go over 55 miles an hour. That's the law. Okay. So we, we think of law as, as some, is that fair to say? When I talk to you, all right, what's the law? Well, the law is this code, these behaviors, these rules that we're supposed to live by. And that's okay. That's the way our word is used. And we don't have really a better word to use to translate what Paul's writing about or to translate the Old Testament. But we need to get deeper into it to understand the full flavor of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that's translated law most typically hundreds of times is the word Torah. That is not to be confused with the movie Torah, Torah, Torah. I've saved you that movie clip. I can only put in so many per week. It's the Hebrew word Torah. And the Hebrew word Torah in its core meaning means instruction. It's not in its core a, 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 a legal code. A, a legal law that's been or enacted by some ruling authority to tell you what you must or must not do. At its root, the Hebrew word is an instruction. It's a, 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 a teaching, yes, but a teaching is different. A teaching, you know, I can teach and you can take it or leave it. But an instruction is something that's directed at you to do. And, 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 and instruction is something that tells you or informs you in a directed manner. And that's what the Hebrew word Torah means. Now, if we go to our Hebrew Bibles, we're going to see that an instruction, a Torah, is much broader than a simple rule. It's, it's not just, the Old Testament's not just here some rules. It's broader than that. You remember our Hebrew Bibles divided up, the Jews would divide their scriptures up into three parts, right? The first part would be the, the, the Torah or the law. Those are the first five books. Then there was a second group called the Nevi'im, which are the prophets. So you'll read about the law and the prophets. 
Then there was a third group of scriptures called the Ketuvim, which is the, the other writings, the Psalms, and things like that. They're included there. So you've got the law and the prophets and the other writings. The law is what the first five books were. Let's, let's pull those out for just a moment and look at them. The law. Old Testament law technically was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now think about that because Paul's going to write about the law. But if we understand law in the sense that he uses it, we're going to understand that the Old Testament law are five books that we have, most of us at least, some familiarity with, right? I mean, we know that at this point, law wasn't just rules, it included stories. And you can go back to Genesis and you can read about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. That's part of the law. We don't think in those terms. If you know, we, 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 I'm a lawyer. I went to law school. I read the law. And, and in law school, they didn't teach us stories for law. You know, the law is a list of, of rules or it's a list of principles or it's a list of cases that have already decided things that have been put in writing. That's what the law is. But these stories are Hebrew Torah. They're Hebrew law because we get instruction from them. They're instructive. And that's why they're called part of the law. They are instructions for people. And that's what Paul's doing. Now, I have put into your lesson a word about Old Testament studies and, and our approach. Um, I don't want to spend much time on it, but... I, I, maybe I, it's, we've got a moment. Let's go ahead and take a moment if we've got it. Um, the uh, Old Testament, how do you read the Old Testament and understand it? Okay. We in the Southern Baptist tradition, like most evangelical traditions, Church of Christ, uh, most uh, 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 at this point Pentecostal churches, um, uh, a good bit of what we would consider evangelicalism, reads the Old Testament very straightforward. This is what it says. We accept it. That's the way scholars have done with the Old Testament historically, with small little blips in the history scene, until the 17-1800s rolled around. And in the 1800s, scholars had a chance to, to approach the Bible with what they thought was new thought processes that had been unleashed as as science and then uh, seemed to be growing. And so there was a fellow, a German theologian named Wellhausen. And, and what Wellhausen did is, and it's spelled with a W. Um, that's the way I spell it. I don't know how he spelled it. Um, but uh, uh, I'm teaching this class and he's dead, so we're going with mine. <laughs> what he did is he said, you know, the Old Testament is not what it seems to be. He's a big-time German theologian who causes a major division in how the church and scholars understand Scripture. What Wellhausen said is that parts of the Old Testament were different traditions and cultures that Jews had that came together later. 
So, for example, he would tell you that Genesis 1, which is the creation and seven-day account, and Genesis 2, which is God making Adam and Eve, he would say those were two entirely different traditions with two entirely different stories that were just combined by some late scholar. And what he actually does is he actually divides up Scripture into four different sources, the Old Testament Scripture. He's got a source that he calls J, which stood for Jehovah. And those are the passages that talk about God as Yahweh. And then he had another section that he called E, which stood for Elohim. And those are the passages that talk about God as God. Then he said there was a third source that was the P, the priestly source. And these were the priests who wrote all the priestly stuff. And then there is a Deuteronomic source, which are kind of like the lawyers. And, and this is what he thought the Old Testament was. Now, I think the guy was, was wrong. And, and, uh, um, but, but there is a good bit of what we would call liberal scholarship that followed him. And so if you go and you read Old Testament commentaries, or you read Old Testament studies, or you even check out some of the sources I've footnoted in my text, you'll read people who believe this to be true, who do not think that the Old Testament was ever written in the way it claims to be written. They believe that the, the process was very old, uh, I mean very new relatively. That's not my approach. I've studied it. I've written papers on it. I've sought to understand it. I've put it through my grid of trying to see whether or not I think it's proper. And I've rejected it on academic grounds because academically it doesn't satisfy my intellectual bent. Which is fascinating because if you were at Harvard Divinity School, it's what would be taught just as a matter of course. And I'm not there, but I don't care. I, I still look at it and academically I find it lacking. I think history has shown it lacking. Subsequent scholars have had to severely refine and rewrite Wellhausen's hypothesis because archaeology starts uncovering all of these things that cause people to publish books like uh, this one. Old Testament parallels. Laws and stories, let's see if I can get that a little bit better. Laws and stories from the ancient Near East. And these are laws that are clearly several thousand years old that are so closely paralleling some of our Old Testament passages that it's really hard for someone to say, oh gee, that was written by some priest in 500 B.C. No, these Old Testament things like what we're going to be talking about today are very typical. The Old Testament law is very typical of what you would have found in other communities two and three thousand years before Christ. They're very ancient forms and they're very ancient ideas that are enveloped into our scripture. And so my approach is, I believe it for what it says. I believe it's written as it says it was written and put together as it says it was put together. And I see no reason to challenge it on academic reasons and certainly not on faith reasons. 
But this is not just me blindly wanting to be a conservative evangelical. This is me trying to fairly assess this as a critical lawyer, if nothing else. I would love to have cross-examined Wellhausen on the stand. I think I could have persuaded a jury of 12 and gotten a unanimous verdict that the guy's a kook. <laughs> so let's examine the Old Testament Torah with our understanding of what it is that, and, and with that word. The Old Testament Torah, what is the law? Well, it starts with Genesis. Genesis in Hebrew is the word bareshit. It means in the beginning. It's the very first word in there. Rosh is, or resh is the, the head in Hebrew. So this means at the head of or in the beginning. We call it Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is part of the law. Part of the law is, is that God created man and woman. Put them in the Garden of Eden. They fell. Cain, Abel, children come. Cain kills Abel. Another child comes. We can follow it through to Noah. We've got Noah and the ark. We can follow the, 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 the narrative through. We've got Abraham called out. We've got him having Ishmael through Hagar. We've got him having the child of promise through Sarah, Isaac. We've got the uh, almost completed sacrifice of Isaac on the mountain when God stops the sacrifice. All of this is part of the law. This is part of the law. The law instructs us through these stories. It instructs us through the offspring. It instructs us through Isaac. It instructs us through Jacob and Esau. It instructs us through the, the children of Jacob, through Joseph and his coat of many colors. Still in Genesis, Joseph and his brothers and the family moves to Egypt. That's an instruction to us. That's part of the law. That's part of the Torah. And as they get to Egypt, they become ultimately enslaved by a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and is new to power. And over the several hundred years they're there, they're enslaved. And what happens? Exodus opens with the baby Moses being born. At a time when Pharaoh's killing the Jewish babies, male babies, baby Moses is put into some rushes, a rush basket, and is drawn out of the water. By the way, where did his mom ever think of that? Did you ever wonder? Maybe did God just tell her? I guess she may have. But that was actually not that uncommon back then. That's a way that people would try to save babies that were set to be destroyed. Um, uh, we've got, um, I didn't plan on going here, but if you'll give me just a moment. Page 89 tells an, uh, an interesting story. This is the story of Sargon of Agadi. This is a story that dates back to 2300 B.C. This is not Mr. Wellhausen, something that some scholar put together in 500 B.C. because he wanted to come up with some great story about some made-up guy named Moses. Here's what it says. Call me Sargon. I am the one and only great king of Agadi. My mother was a priest. My father was an unknown. My mother gave birth to me in secret at Asupiranu. That's up near Amarilla. The city of Saffron. She hid me in a basket woven from rushes and sealed with tar. 
My mother abandoned me on the banks of the Euphrates. The Euphrates carried my basket away. Aki, the royal gardener, lifted me out of the water and reared me as his own. I mean, this, 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 was, a, <laughs> this was the royal way to have babies without stretch marks. This was, this was, this was common. Okay? So we have this as instruction. This is Torah. This is Old Testament law. This is what Moses' mother did for Moses. Moses is put in the basket. And, 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 and we have Moses is reared in Pharaoh's household. Moses ultimately uh, uh, goes off, meets God at a burning bush. God says, take off your feet, you're on holy ground. I am who I am. Sends Moses back, says, we're going to get my people out of Egypt. Moses goes back after plague, after plague, after plague, final death of the unborn. All of this is law. God calls the people forth and Pharaoh sends them out. They reach the Red Sea. They have trouble at the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea as Moses stretches out his staff. And the people pass through safely. Pharaoh and his army have had second thoughts. They're following. They get drowned. This is all part of the law. This is part of Torah. As I'm saying this to you, I want you to be thinking through those Paul verses that we're going to talk about next week. Maybe this is some of why the law doesn't save you. This is all part of the law. It's part of the law that they come to Mount Sinai. And while on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up. God writes ten commandments and calls Israel into a covenant relationship. A special, unique relationship. You can read Old Testament covenant type language in covenants especially from the Hittites but from many cultures back then there were standard forms here's the way a covenant was written if you want to come to my office and you want a form to buy a house a real estate form I'm not going to write it from scratch they're form books that we use for that stuff actually we don't do that work so don't come to me but if we did there'd be we'd use form books same thing with wills and trusts, you know. <laughs> you know. I don't know how to write a will, but I could make my way through it perhaps by using the form books. Okay? There were forms back then for things like treaties and covenants. And so God calls to the people. He says, I want a covenant relationship with you. And the people called into this covenant enter into a covenant with God. They cut a deal. They have a unique relationship. And here's what it is. The first thing that happens in these covenant treaties is there's an act of divine grace in, in, in the one we have in Exodus. And it's kind of an amalgam of the others. It's not exclusively. It's tailor-made to Israel, if you will. But the first thing you have is God's act of divine grace. God starts the covenant with Israel. He begins saying, Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen how I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. This whole thing started with me, Israel. I initiated this. It was my act of divine grace. You weren't asking, you weren't looking, you weren't begging, you certainly didn't earn it. I reached down and I saw my people in bondage and I bore you out myself. Number one. Number two. Your response, Israel, is to be one of obedience. I initiated the covenant. 
your response is one of obedience. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, if you will respond in obedience, then we have step three. There will be resulting blessings. If you will respond in obedience, if you will indeed obey my voice, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples. Beautiful word there for treasured possessions. It's the Hebrew word that means the king's personal bounty. It's not money that's brought in from taxes to run the government. It'd be like uh, uh, President Obama, instead of going to uh, the treasury to borrow the money for the bailout, if he had had it in his own bank account, him saying, hey, I'll write this check myself out of my private funds. Okay? It's, it's the private funds. That's the word here. If you will indeed obey my voice, you shall be my treasured possession. You're my private funds. Among all peoples, you'll be to me a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. These are the blessings if you'll do it. Now, the fourth part of this covenant is you violate the rules, you're going to get the curses. You violate the covenant, you incur, incur the curses. When the time comes for me to punish, I'll punish them for their sin, God says, after they've worshipped the calf. This is what a covenant is. This is the way the covenant was set out. And this is what the Jews had there. And this is part of the law. But it's only a part of the law. It's not the whole law. We have a tendency because of our mindset on what law is. We have a tendency to think the law must have been the rules that Moses got. And those are just a part of it. They're the part that fit into this piece of the covenant. But they're not the whole law. They're not all of the Torah. Now it's interesting because not only do we have, if you were to read through these passages um, through the quicksand, if you will, not only do we get through the covenant, but there are small covenants as well. Same type thing. For example, when God gives the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, it's the same four steps of a covenant. If you took, uh, any of you ever took, studied economics in college? There's macroeconomics and microeconomics. You know, macro, the big ones, micro, the small ones, or vice versa. I get them mixed up even though I took them. You know, you've got the big view of a covenant, but even in the Ten Commandments, just on themselves, you've got a covenant. You've got all four elements of a covenant. Look at it. God's act of divine grace. Ten Commandments start out. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If we were looking at a historical covenant, the first element of a historical covenant that, that the Hittites might have, the form, if you will, out of the form book, would be a reciting of the history that led up to the making of the covenant. It's the same thing. It's just that our history is the action of God, not really us. God's covenant with us is because God chose it, not because we asked for it. So... Starts out, God's act of divine grace. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel's response is to be one of obedience. Don't have any more gods before me. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Right? That's, and if you walk in the covenant, you have resulting blessings. I'll be, God says, showing steadfast love. God will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, uh, uh, honor your father and mother. 
that your days may be long in the land. First commandment with a promise, Paul says. The, 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 God is going to show blessings as you walk under the covenant, Israel. That's the, the declaration in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, violations bring curses. I'm the Lord your God, jealous God. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. I'm not going to hold anyone guilty who misuses, my, misuses his name. The Lord won't, he says. Hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That, that's, that's the four elements of the covenant. Now, side note here. Did Jesus come to abolish the Torah? No, he came to fulfill the Torah. That's what he says, right? Oh, and he fulfills it. He fulfills the stories. Paul will tell us he's the new Adam, the new creation, the fulfillment of the whole that's left by the fall. How about Abraham offering his son Isaac? That part of the Torah. Remember that story? Abraham's about to kill Isaac. God stops him. And what does God say? No, I'll provide the sacrifice. And so the son that's slain, that fulfills the Torah, is Jesus, the son of God. Isaac, the son of Abraham, dying for us, just doesn't quite have the punch eternally. I'll tell you that Jesus himself is the covenant fulfillment as well. It's Jesus is God's divine act of grace. It's God's initiation. It is from God that it comes. And our response, Israel's response was to be one of obedience. Jesus was perfectly obedient and had the resulting blessings. He will live eternally. He was resurrected. He was perfect. He was without blemish. But Jesus also took our curses. He bore the curses that we have because of our violations. So we see in Jesus a perfect fulfillment. If you, Jesus is hanging on the cross, remember his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First words from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 ends. Jesus doesn't say the whole psalm, but if you read the whole psalm, you'll see that it starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it charts through Jesus. It's a messianic psalm. Bearing, and it lists out almost every curse listed out in the Old Testament. Because that's what he did. He bore the covenant curses that God's people earned. So with Exodus, we've got the covenant. We've also got some additional moral principles that God gave Moses for the people to live by. And we can see those in Exodus 20 through 23. And then there are instructions for worship. Instructions for worship include how to build the tabernacle and things like this. Again, part of what the people were going to walk through in this covenant relationship. Then the story continues and we have a story about disobedience and the golden calf. And all that that teaches us. And we are taught about sacrificing and the right way to do it and what the priesthood should be and how the worship should be done. And that's set forward there as well. And then we roll into Deuteronomy. Now Deuteronomy, unlike Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy is Moses' commentary on the law. It's where Moses goes back through. You'll reread about the Ten Commandments in it. Moses goes back through and gives some commentary inspired by God as God's prophet. 
That doesn't mean that, oh, it's second rate. No, no, no. This is Moses. God gave Moses the law and Moses gives us the commentary. That is the Old Testament Torah. That's the quicksand. That's the stuff that's so difficult to read through in places, yet a thrilling read in others. And so when Paul talks next week and we come together and we discuss the law, we're going to need to have a much broader concept of the law. We'll understand now how the law doesn't really save us. We'll understand now that there is a, a system in place for the Jews that the Christians don't come into. For Paul, it was never a question of should you, if you want to be a Christian, do you have to first become a Jew? And if we're going to understand how the law applies to a Christian or how the law applies to a church or how the law applies to a culture or a community or a country, we need to understand what the law was originally. And then we'll understand what the purposes of that law were. And then our theology will help us understand how and where it's important for us today. So that's the goal. Now, before we go, a couple of by the ways. Okay? By the way, the Torah, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, doesn't have all of the law Israel had to live by. There have been some community efforts historically that said, hey, we're just going to take the law that God gave Moses and that will be our law and we'll speak where it speaks and be silent where it's silent for our community. Well, you can't really do that. I mean, the, the Bible itself tells you that Israel had other laws that they needed to function as a community and as a country and as a government. These are the ones God gave them. And these were principles and, 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 and things that, that they were to follow. But it wasn't the totality of what they had to run their country. I've given you a reference out of the Proverbs that talks about how you should live in, in terms of surety and, and property rights and things that, that tell us that the Israelites had other laws that, that they lived by beyond those contained in the Bible. This was not a complete A to Z blueprint for the government of Israel. Does that make sense? These are the important ones that God saw fit to put in Scripture. It's like Paul's writings. We have Paul's letters. We don't have everything Paul wrote. We only have the ones God put in Scripture for our instruction. Next, this is an important one. Some of the laws we read in the Torah are not God's perfect ideal. Some of them are compromise laws, what I would call a compromise law. That may not be a fair thing. Here's what I mean. Some are absolute ideas. Let's get those first. God says to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're to do that. That's not hedging. That's not, well, it's a compromise. No, that is a pure moral instruction, absolutely dead on the, the heart and desire of God for us to do. Another one, love your neighbor as yourself. Dead on, hard to do. Don't know that any of us ever do it perfectly, but it's God's moral absolute to us. But there are some other laws that are clearly God saying, this is the law. I hate it has to be this way, but because you're sinful and because you're fallen, this is the way we're going to make the best out of the situation. For example, Moses has laws that pertain to divorce. And Jesus is even asked about it. 
And Jesus gives you the explanation I've just given you. He says, hey, you know, that wasn't God's ideal and that wasn't God's plan and God's not really charmed with it. That's not the way God made it to be. Moses had to give you that because you have hard hearts that are going to take you down that road. And, and so you've got to make the best of a bad situation with God. It's the principle that, that I'm not on God's A plan for my life. But it doesn't mean God's washed his hands with me. It means he will take me where I am and still try to make me the best I can be for him and his plans. Another example is capital punishment. God's plan is not for people to be killed for any reason. He didn't make Adam and Eve to die at all. Cain kills Abel. Cain's offspring becomes a murderer. Violence becomes prevalent throughout the land. And finally... God says in Genesis 9, if you kill someone, your blood's going to be required of you. And so he says, we, you know, th that's, that's, God's ideal is that no one's going to die. God doesn't want anybody committing murder. But we're going to have people committing murder. And so God sets up in Genesis 9 and in the Old Testament, sets out a law that says, under these circumstances, if you do this, then death is the penalty you will pay. Again, this is, this is God, you know, we've got to understand the full flavor of what the Old Testament law was for us to begin to understand the fact that we don't live under that law. We live under grace. Doesn't mean we don't have moral issues that we are to charged to, to respond to and to live under doesn't mean that morality is reflected in the law is wrong. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying the morality's right. I'm saying the rules are right. The absolutes are right. But if we don't understand the full flavor of what the law is, we won't fairly understand not only the redemption we have in Jesus, but the responsibilities we have in Jesus. And so um, with that, I'll tell you that next week our goals are to say, what does Paul say about the law? as it applies to the believer. You know, when, when we read the Romans 8 passage that Charles talked about last week, where, where there's no condemnation, Paul writes, for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ, the instruction, the Torah of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. The Torah law. You know, we, we've got... We've got to understand this to understand what it means for us. What is my responsibility? I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm to love the, the, uh, my, my neighbor as myself. I'm not to take God's name in vain. I'm not to, to commit the foulest of offenses against my wife and go behind her in relationships. I'm not to do any of those things. I'm not to bear false witness against you. I'm not to do, you know, those are, are moral statements that I'm not to do. But it's not because I want to get the blessings of the covenant people of Israel. It's because of a much higher reason. It's because God, and th those whole instructions were there for our blessing to start with. The biggest thing, Paul's going to say, the biggest blessing God gave the Jews when he called them out is giving them the law. 
You know, is it, does it surprise you to find out that our legal system in America and in England is based on the biblical legal system? King Alfred the Great in the 900s authored the British common law, which is what we've inherited in our states. And the common law system, he used the laws of Moses as, as one of his major reference points. We, but where do those lines fall? Where do we find them fitting me as a Christian? Where do we find them fitting us as a church? Should our church be following the rules for Israel? The worship of Israel. You know, well, obviously we're not, you know, we don't have Pastor Fleming or Pastor Trammell with a big old knife killing the goat for everybody. But where do we draw the line? Do we read the Psalms? Those are the issues. So with that, let's go to the points for home. Oh, no. And then also the country. Now, some of y'all may get mad at me one way or the other. So I'm just going to teach what I see fit to teach. And if you don't like it, you can always say I'm cuckoo under your breath. But are we, I mean, do the promises that God gave Israel, do they go to the United States if we do the things Israel was charged to do? Is there such a thing as a Christian country versus a non-Christian country? And yet, as Christians, shouldn't we take our faith and shouldn't we take our morality and shouldn't we seek to, to, to apply? I mean, those are hard questions. And so they, they deserve some honest answers and, and at least discussions, even if you may not agree with everything I say or, or your neighbor says sitting next to you. So we'll discuss some of those points next week too, uh, 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 if we can get through all of that next week. Points for home. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to read all of it, but I am going to ask you to read some of each section for next week, even if it's just a couple verses. Read a little bit for next week because I, I wanted you to have the flavor of what it is as we go into some depth next week about what applies, what doesn't apply, why, why not, things of that nature. Next point. God said, you yourselves have seen how I rescued you. Now, therefore, you behave differently. There is nobody in this assembly today that hasn't seen and understood what God has done for them through Jesus you don't get into a church without having some concept that Jesus Christ died for your sins now therefore you yourselves have seen and and the the same response is the same question is asked and that is what is your response and what are you going to do with it it still flabbergasts me that anybody can see Jesus dying for their sins and not want to come under that redemption. I just don't understand that. Oh, I can understand if people don't believe it. Intellectually, they don't think it happened. I'd like to talk to those people because I think the greater weight of the, the credible evidence to speak in legalese certainly shows it did. Or I could understand if people say, uh, you know, I, I've got, uh, actually, I can't understand much other. I can't, I can't, I can't fathom any other reason. Why, why not? 
just doesn't make sense to me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's a moral absolute. That wasn't God's compromised position because of the sin of man. That's God's very clear spoken direction. It's the reason why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment out of all of the Torah? He doesn't have any trouble answering. It is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he says, is the follow-up. And, and to quote a good Jewish rabbi scholar, all the rest is commentary. You do those two perfectly and you fulfill the law. You know, there's a struggle. Having said that, we need to understand what it means to love the Lord your God. And how can we understand what it means to love him with all our heart if we don't read his instructions? We don't read what he wants us to do. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going with this next week. We're going to reach for the moral best in our lives out of a response to a loving God who has reached down and saved us. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please bless us this week uh, in our efforts uh, uh, to, to better understand your, your relationship with us. Lord, uh, way back in Jeremiah, you, you promised that you would create a, a new covenant on your people that you carved into their hearts instead of on stone and and we're the beneficiaries of that lord we know we've got that covenant in christ but it's my prayer that we will better understand what you're doing in our lives so we need your holy spirit to guide us we need your holy spirit to convict us we need your holy spirit to remind us this week to to be prepared for our study next week I pray that you will remind everyone this week to spend some time trying to read at least a small portion out of each of those Old Testament books. Thank you for the honor of being your children. Thank you for reaching down to us in a divine act of grace. Thank you for rescuing us from sin and death. We humbly uh, bow before you, proclaim you as our God and our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.